0: Hey everyone welcome
1: to the water voice i'm greg and i'm kevin and we look forward to talking with you about all things water and startups and much more let's go Welcome everyone to the Water Voice. Today we have a a special guest. This is someone that I respect a lot. Um, I I look up to uh, a lot. Michael Christian. Um, I don't even know how to begin to introduce you. I mean, you're an inventor. You're a designer. uh, You've co-founded a company uh, or companies. You've worked in senior management. uh, But our conversations um, typically go a lot deeper than just business and, and, you know, all things startup. You, I would consider you somewhat of a philosopher in a sense. Um, but who is Michael Christian?
0: Wow. Uh, <laughs> probably all the things that you said, but uh, right now, as I'm really not part of any organization, I don't have a position of, of uh, influence or authority i'm simply one person who has some views and uh, i act on them by being involved with you and your project because it's a green project uh and and with the other part of that project and at my time in life uh i have figured out what the purpose of life is it's really simple it's helping other people period uh, if there's any confusion about that it's it isn't for me Uh, i can't see any other thing to do so that's what i'm here to do i'm using my experience my ability to think write and research uh talk uh, communicate to further those types of things along and of course right now we're involved in a project that has the potential to reduce eight percent of the carbon dioxide for going from going into the air uh that is a huge that would be a huge thing to do
1: yeah yeah it is um amazing and You know you say that and you you live that um that's that's something that emanates from you is your um your willingness and your passion to help other people and i want to jump right into this because um this is something that together we're working on uh now aquapor um you know we have technology that uh solves a couple issues one being obviously the water issue but the underlying technology is a means to decarbonize uh, one of the most, uh, CO2 intensive industries in the world, which is cement production. This is something that you have, um, totally jumped into and researched and you understand really well. What, what got you into this besides us just meeting what, um, I guess, attracted you to wanting to understand everything that you could about this problem.
0: Well, it's been uh, a long-term interest from the earlier days in environmental uh, consideration, where carrying capacity was a, a real big issue, and uh, which has to do with population carrying capacity. At uh, the time I was involved, was going kind of county by county and state by state, saying how many people can we have in our city and our county with the resources, you know, water and power and all that uh, that are available to us. And uh, one of the counties where I worked on that with, there was a limit set, and some of the towns actually froze their population for a while. And then the the, uh, development money started rolling in and influencing city planners, and that ended after a while, and now these little towns are just chock full of houses, and uh, the power supply, the water supply, they're all suffering because you can't carry that many people, there's a limit. You know, we can't have 27 billion people on the planet. It won't work.
1: Right. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Now, on that basis, um, you are writing a white paper that uh, we've talked about. And I am i can't wait until, you know, it's finished and I'm able to, uh, to read the whole thing. Um, I, if you're okay with this, I'd like to talk about the white paper and some of your thinking that's gone sure. into this. Um, and, and I want to start off immediately with uh, an excerpt that you recently read to me that um, I thought was pretty powerful. And it was profound. I think you titled it An Unpayable Debt. Yes. Do you, do you mind reading that again?
0: No, I don't. Uh the title of this paper is well the purpose of the paper was to see if we could determine what would be a good cost to pay people for not emitting a ton a metric ton which is about forty-four hundred pounds of carbon into the air uh, because there's 34 billion tons being emitted annually all over the world and uh we wanted to come up with what is the damage that's really created and so uh one of the first things I did was analyze the, dam- the, the cost to humans. And this one, this paragraph is titled An Unpayable Debt. One of the costs of air pollution rarely addressed is the effect on human lives. Around 8 million people die from factors presented by air pollution annually. Though human life is seldom given a monetary value, the workers' compensation system in the United States pays an average of $1.3 million per worker death, giving us a dollar value on human life based on 2021 data. The cost of human life lost from air pollution annually is approximately $10.5 trillion. The grief caused by their death is incalculable. Worth mentioning are the millions who suffer from the non-fatal effects of air pollution. We are looking at an annual death toll and cost. It is best to look at an accumulative figure for an estimate of untimely deaths related to air pollution. For example, let's assume 100 million deaths over the last 20 years, and the average cost of life is $1 million. The tragic cost of loss would be $100 trillion, and this can never be paid back. The old utilitarian ethic was the greatest good for the greatest number. We seem to be reversing that to the greatest good for the few.
1: Wow. That um, that hits it on the head. It's pretty hard to argue with a, a number like that. You put an yeah. actual, you know, an actual number on human life. Um, what do you hope to accomplish with the white paper?
0: Um. There. uh, I have another section that might answer that.
1: Okay. Yeah.
0: So I read that. Okay. Yeah. I think this is the epilogue in the paper.
1: Okay.
0: Okay. Are we saying it is not possible to change the course of events leading to ever greater environmental catastrophes and life loss? Have we explored and tried different kinds of energy sources, building materials and food sources? Are we done and finished with the climate goals of getting our CO2 emissions down to zero? Is it human limitations, physical limitations, limitation from lack of will or intent, love of status quo so much, unwilling to change one's favored part in it, lack of compassion for other people and the life that supports? Do we throw up our hands and say the catastrophes are inevitable, so crank up the fossil fuels, overfish the fisheries, cut all the trees, use more and more cement to build ever-growing urban landscape? Make sure the favorite have a shelter from the global storm and resources to support their merest whim. Let our changes to the environment take their course, keep the population growing, let war and other catastrophes thin out the population that can no longer be supported by the ecosystem. We can do nothing to improve our condition, no possible improvements are we willing to make. If that is so, the best disaster movies will be outside our doors and windows and 24-hour TV coverage talking of the tragedies and deaths and heroics of a few risking their lives to save others. There is a clear path to a better world. Reduce carbon emissions from 34 gigatons a year to zero. Allow the global system to adjust, modify and replace existing sources of carbon. Change our consumption and manufacturing habits. Ask ourselves why the suffering of others means nothing to us. Are we willing to consider the agony of those ailing from the ills of pollution can we look away not to see the last moments of a person's life who is dying from the deleterious effects in the environment they depend on to live that's that's stuff as yeah. far as i've gotten on that section
1: that's really good <laughs> so uh and you did you you answered the question it gets back to um i think what you started with was you know your mission to to help others and shining a light on this huge issue that um there's been you know th- there's a tension now given to obviously climate change and you know this issue of uh, co2 emissions um but now just like any and there's been markets that have popped up from this carbon markets and there's a lot of um there's been greenwashing there's some uh funny accounting that goes on. You have also researched very um, thoroughly into some of these carbon exchanges and registries. Mm-hmm. What in general have you found from doing that? Are, are we getting to the point where there's going to be um, a fixed market for carbon abatement? And how soon do you think something like that could happen?
0: um that is the goal is to get to that uh like a uh, that kind of a figure you know the initial figure that i came up from this paper was i was i took the seven trillion dollars uh that the international monetary fund says that uh energy industry gets a year and discounts to produce their uh electricity and then i added 11 uh trillion dollars to that and divided it by 34 mil, million uh 34 billion tons and i come up with came up with 500 dollars per ton and uh that's not counting all the other factors because that's really hard for me to quantify at this time like 69 percent of the wildlife since 1970 has gone uh, that's pretty Nuts. that's pretty priceless and you know how do we how do we do that? We have uh, coastlines that are already swallowing up some of our the edges of some countries and islands. Um, the I, I think one of the things I get mostly frustrated with is one. In order to maintain vested interest, there's people that are saying that the science of this is baloney, and it's like uh, it's science that's what we depend upon. It's what you depend upon when you go to your dentist or your doctor or anything else, or you drive across a bridge, you hope that science had that right. Right. And so then to say that there's no science for this, that's uh, since uh, the 1950s when uh, Mr. Keeling uh, started measuring carbon dioxide in Southern California for his doctorate, I believe it was uh, he ran into, he was in Pasadena and every time he measured it around Pasadena it was a different number. So he said, boy, I've got to figure this out. And so then he tried someplace else. I think it was uh, Santa Barbara. Uh, and it was a little more consistent. He actually saw the breath of the day, what happened at night with our carbon dioxide and what happened in the day. And then finally he and some people said, we need to put it in a good place. And so they ended up in Hawaii on the top of, of uh, Mauna Loa. And they put the very first uh, global measuring device for carbon. Wow. And it's been an excellent uh, continuous monitoring and is given the patterns of what carbon dioxide does. it's. I think Mauna is over 10,000 feet. And, and so it's pretty clear up there. So that figure doesn't vary, except with the natural cycles of, there's a cycle between spring and fall and there's cycles between day and night.
1: Interesting.
0: Uh, and so that is resulted in something we call the Keeling Curve, which shows uh, when industrial um, activities began, the amount of carbon for tens of millions of years was about 280 parts per million. And now uh, we've measured up to 417 parts per million. And the curve that goes up from the industrial age uh, up to is really a sharp rise. And we go back millions of years, uh, like, through the uh, deep core of the uh, Antarctic ice sheets. It gives you a year by year blow. of What was the carbon dioxide? It's like reading tree rings. Um, and it shows what the carbon dioxide was. It's like very stable, 280 million plus or minus some until the industrial age. And now we're at 417, and we're feeling the results. Yeah. Uh, one of the most important theories in science that seems to be hard to un- understand, I'm not sure quite why, is system. You know, a system is um, simply whatever you want to look at as the system you have an input to it like and and then you have an output and you do something in between like here's life in between we input all these things and output all these things but it has a feedback loop in it it changes from that that loop uh and uh what goes out the process and changes and so a system uh it's a bit more complex because to look at the whole thing which i wish we would do the ocean uh 50 of the ocean uh rise is not from melting or anything it's from the expansion of water due to the increased heat that the ocean has interesting and so there's like these little subtleties all over uh that lead to a much more rapid change than we might expect
1: yeah you know um there's a lot to unpack there but i want to go back to um sort of the the carbon market and how the most impactful change can happen and it's gonna I think happen slowly but the why do you think it's taken well this is a rhetorical question you and I know why it's taken so long corporate profits over this is something you and I have talked about over the last 20 years have been what
0: 38 trillion
1: dollars 38 trillion that's in dollars. the
0: united just the united states not just, the rest of the
1: world just in the united states and that's been a lot um you know that's heavy industry that's obviously the tech industry um yeah but that's a lot of money and that's um we're talking about industries that have very heavy or high carbon footprints and right. so they're very entrenched um and, you know, I'm, I'm wandering now, but I want to get to the greenwashing that we, we're we seeing. And let's just call it out because there's a lot of this that's happening. And we've seen this uh, specific. I mean, it's happening here, but also in the EU where the cement industry, the steel industry, huge heavy industries are uh, that have, you know, large carbon footprints are almost getting kickbacks or like some relief um, from the EU, from the government so nothing is really uh being done they're not hitting these targets and yet they're getting credit for hitting those targets can you talk more about that
0: well you asked uh, earlier what the carbon market is and it is uh, in really disarray i was leading a reading a headline in a newsletter today that says the uh natural carbon sinks that are uh, part of the carbon market like people get about so much per ton from a forest uh for that, the carbon that's uh, taken in by the trees. But the headline read that all the natural carbon are, are just reducing in value and more value and more value. It's like that needs to go the other way. Um, I think that even if we did $500 a ton to reward those that don't emit or that can counter it in some significant way would be a good, we need to incentivize uh, somebody besides those that produce it. We've incentivized the people that produce it very well. We need to incentivize that, that that don't produce it or that if we end up with a cement that doesn't emit any carbon and you could say, well, there's eight, eight," no, excuse me. Yeah, it's 8%. What am I thinking? 400 million tons for the cement industry,
1: excuse um, me. No, no, I I follow and uh, you put it so simply there. That's, I guess, the problem that I'm having with all of this is um, there's a big money, and, and now I'm talking more on the private side, and I'm my lens is on uh, venture capital. That is heavily financed, and I think it's with the best of intentions. They're heavily financing some of these carbon capture and storage technologies, um, yeah. which, by the way, have an extremely high water footprint. They have other issues. Um, with these technologies and yet there are technologies that um, simply don't they, they could be alternative we'll talk about concrete an alternative type of concrete that doesn't produce any co2 in the process that aren't even being looked at. so it's almost like abatement or or reduction is not even being looked at. Why do you think that is
0: uh um. I think that uh, we have so much more, m- momentum going the way that we do and so much invested in things as they are. And, uh, you know, I've watched vested interest over the years. They don't seem to have any problem in uh, proselytizing, propagandizing and having disinformation so that, that nobody looks at them with any particular scrutiny or holds them accountable uh, for all that money they make without having, say, take that three, eight trillion and just take a third of it and put it into, let's change our process. Let's not do that. And also why don't we remediate some things we can't change? Uh, we're not doing that. We're saying that greed is good. (laughs) And that, uh, making the money for the individual is more important than anything else. Um, Our country has evolved quite a bit in this direction uh, where uh, commerce is king. And uh, uh, one of the things that um, I'll read one paragraph here that I name it, okay? Sure. What business does well is to deal with the physical world and modify it to fit goals. What government does well is to implement visionary laws and practices to reach goals no single player can do. Meld business savvy with government global oversight and we can tack in the direction we need to to go and pull away from the direction of negative and dire consequences to one of improving conditions, less suffering, less death and less loss. So I think we can take the two things that they do well. You know, business knows how to. We rely on business to interface with a natural world to give us our food and our lumber and our concrete and all that. And government should be the oversight that says, um, okay, with all that, we have uh, national goals, and yep. this is what our national goals are. And they can do that. And they can do that with uh, cap and trade. Um, they can do that with other incentives. They're already doing some carbon tax uh, relief yep. for carbon. Yep. And uh, they can go more in that direction.
1: I, I and, 100% uh, agree.
0: And I've... you talked about carbon capture, uh I looked at that when it first came out. It looked very interesting. Uh, one of the significant things I don't see is they never mentioned what their carbon footprint is because you said they use water, they use electricity. And one Australian mathematician that I read, and I'm not too sure about all of it, he says it's roughly equal, the energy that it takes to uh, trap the carbon than it did the, the same energy that it caused to produce it. Yeah. And I'm skeptical, skeptical that you can take our 70 miles of atmosphere or whatever it is that has carbon dioxide mixed in there, and, and put it all through machines and and suck it out of there. I'm very skeptical of that. And then there's the thing: what are you going to do with it? You're right. You know, it was it was tried in Australia. They we're going to shove this stuff down in between some shale plates or whatever, and it didn't work. Yeah. Um, so uh, I'm a little skeptical that this that is going to do anything. It's very clear to me that the way to do this is to stop emitting, period. Yep. Everything in between is, oh, I did something good. No, you didn't. You're just saying you did.
1: Yep. I, I totally agree, and I think that's where it's going to get to. I do see, and I'm reading more about you know, reduction being looked at, carbon reduction from you know, existing processes that before were extremely mm-hmm. intensive, CO2 intensive, um, and then I'm reading a lot more about climate adaptation, um, for us at Aquapor, that's a, a big, a big deal because, because I think that's one of the main things our technology can provide is, um, listen, <laughs> we're going to hit the 1.5 degrees Celsius threshold. I believe, mm-hmm. um, yeah. the number of the UN throughout is suddenly we're in this dire situation. I think we're going to blow past it. And so now it's about preparing our cities and communities to be more resilient for these huge you know, these extreme weather events that come along. Um, I'm veering off, but that's sort of, to me, that's progress. We're reading more about adaptation and sort of these reduction uh, measures being looked at. So so going back to this, uh, it, it dawned on me a quote Charlie Munger said, and I'll probably butcher the quote, although it's something to the tune of, show me the incentive and I'll show you the outcome. Yep. And so in California, you know, they sort of had this cap and trade um system where was it a $5,000 a ton tax? Yep. yep. On fossil fuels?
0: It was on the uh, it was on the automobile industry.
1: Okay. And that's so,
0: uh, it was called it was called the ZEV program, the zero emission vehicle Pro- program. And I think 11 other states or so joined in on that uh to do that $5,000 carbon tax and it, and it worked. Uh, Tesla got a lot of money from that, but they also found they established there's an increase in electric vehicles and, uh, and going on in California, a sharp increase almost to the point where it wasn't even worth them having to pay Tesla for their carbon credit anymore. Uh, cause there's a lot of small engines and small things that you can make electric. Uh, I had to buy some electric things here when all our forest fires were here and we couldn't even start a machine. Yeah. I got an electric blower and electric chainsaw and all that kind of stuff. But, so those things really count too.
1: Yep. Well let's, let's talk about that. So, you know, in the west here and and uh in even in spokane we've had really dry summers um the last i don't know several summers and it seems like every late july you know into august it becomes smoke season here so wildfires um have become a problem in the american west and so the climate's changing but i still talk to people believe it or not there are people that deny um that the climate's changing or it's, you know, the old, uh, the climate's always been changing. You know, it's, this is just, uh, another, um, another cycle in the, the evolution of, of the world. And what, you know, we talked you and I about this, the Kubler-Ross, um, Kubler-Ross theory. Can you walk me through that and our listeners, uh, through that and tell us what stage you think we're at right now?
0: Uh, sure, this uh, brilliant uh, a brilliant lady, I think it's Elizabeth Kubler-Roth. I hope that's the right name. But she came up with these five stages of grief uh, when people experience loss, especially death of, an, of a person that they love. And that the first stage was uh, denial. Oh, it didn't happen. Are you telling me the truth? I need to see it for myself, that kind of stuff, where uh, you can't believe that it happened yet. I haven't seen the body, what, whatever takes and so that's that stage uh, denial and of course a lot of people are in that about climate change you're talking about the death of a lot of things on this planet life people uh changes in the habitat that's uh, really sad just if you want to talk about the 69 percent of the wildlife that's died since 1970 that's really sad yeah uh, the two best moments of my day so far are Watching a hummingbird come out on my hummingbird. I'm sitting on a stone wall outside and watching a hummingbird come to my feeder. Cause there's a few that stay in the winter. And I get to see it's crisp little profile against the blue sky and it just makes my day. Yeah. And then a while later I was looking across the valley and I saw the profile of a deer on the top of a hill and my heart just said, wow, I love that. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, denial uh it's really important it, it backs right. off the pain of, of loss for a while it's just a brute force way to back off the the pain of oh my gosh my heart is broken uh no it isn't okay right. and then the next one is anger at the law yeah i lost and boy am i i'm angry and who did that uh was it the way they ate that they'd not eat enough bacon in the morning or whatever it happens right. to be yeah. uh, whatever it is and and so there's that anger. That's natural. Uh, you know, the root of anger is always sadness. Anger doesn't come out by itself. It comes on top of sadness about something. Yeah. And after that, there's the bartering phase, which, uh, and, I mean, now we've seen the angry voices of climate denial. So that stage is well covered still. And then in bartering is the next one. Did it really happen? Did it not? Uh, if this, if that, on and on. You barter. Uh, and we're definitely in the bartering stage, especially with the climate, uh, the carbon capture, because it's like, oh, if I do this, I have permission to do anything I want now because we can all make it up by capturing this carbon. So uh, the bartering phase, we're in that. And I can see it in the carbon markets because they are all over the place. Yeah. Uh, and, and on the one hand, you had the. The zero emission vehicle program charging five thousand dollars a metric ton for carbon—it's very hard to see anything going over twenty ten to forty dollars in that range, and and they're debating it down. And uh, the article six of the Paris Agreement seems to be the one that's really being activated right now, which is it's a part of the Paris Agreement says each country can barter and trade with another country. And then you're out of the kind of you're into kind of almost a private realm, of saying, well, I do this and you do that. And uh, what we need are carbon credits that are based upon intensely uh, um, uh, unbiased monitoring and open to the public to see what the monitoring is of the process, including monitoring what does a tree do. Um, As you mentioned, the forest fires. Uh, I read an article the other day that said that I think California lost 3 million acres of its carbon buffer. They're considering the forest to be a carbon buffer. And so this is happening all over the world. This stuff is dying and burning up. Uh, and by the way, it adds a lot of carbon into the atmosphere when it burns and yep. it can no longer absorb carbon absorb because it. it's not alive.
1: Yeah, that's a huge problem. Um, I'm interested. Go. I, I want to talk more about. Um, it, did, did this come from the recent COP uh, meeting? COP twenty. What was it?
0: Yeah, I forget the number of it. Uh, uh,
1: Twenty-seven.
0: I think it might have. <clears throat> so, I, it's been there for a while, but I, I've seen it emerge as more. It's more visible that that's happening.
1: Yeah. <clears throat> so, if um, a heavy CO two emitting country, say China. Uh, wants to barter or negotiate with another country, um, they could go to, you know, pick pick a country that where a huge swath of the Amazon um, encompasses the country. How would
0: that work? So they go and they would somehow determine what uh, what the value per ton of the carbon absorption is, and then they would pay uh, pay that country those credits. Got it. Uh, Got it. Costa Rica, interesting country. Um, They did away with their military some years ago and said, we're going to put that money to the public good. I like that all by itself. But they recently received a check for $196 million for their carbon credits because they have been reforesting all these areas that were not forested, had been forested before. So they're growing green, greener all the time.
1: Interesting. Yeah, you know, part of that could be, there is some good that could come from that. Um, because maybe, uh, well, this maybe for a longer conversation, but there, there have to be countries that are still developing that, you know, they have these carbon, uh, reducing assets, if you will, or carbon absorbing assets that they could get paid for those assets. Um, so maybe there's, there's some good to come from that. Um, but that also seems like a way to just abdicate responsibility for your huge polluter.
0: Yep. That's that there is the, there is the trip. Yeah. So the last two stages of that cycle of the denial, anger, bartering, the next one is depression. I'm sure a lot of us have felt some depression of the seeming futility to get society changed enough to make a difference. Uh, and then the place you have to get at the end is acceptance. And acceptance is a tricky thing. Acceptance doesn't mean I like something or anything else. It means I finally accept the information about what's happening that, yes, uh, 8 million people are dying a year. You're, you're, that's an incalculable loss to people. Yes, this is the damage that's coming from the rising oceans. This is the damage that's coming from the acid rain and from the carb- carbonic acid that's in the ocean that didn't used to be there to this extent. Um, Acceptance means accepting it all. Yes, the glaciers are retreating. Everybody can see it. There's endless films on YouTube now about watching glaciers, giant calving, where they calve off and ice falls off into the ocean because it's spectacular. But what it is, it's a loss of that fresh water. And then Mm -hmm. that goes into the ocean and that is countering the salt water uh, in the, uh, the Atlantic conveyor which brings warm air from the equator up along the west coast of um, Europe and the east coast of the United States, and gives us balmy little southern place. And England has good. Once that's gone, there's no longer that warm water warming up these countries, and that I can't even calculate what that's going to cost in lives and people and in industry. Um, I, I wouldn't know how to calculate it.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's all uh, obviously very interconnected and we're already seeing that, you know, we're seeing um, extreme weather events that now they don't even make the news, really. They're just um, in communities throughout the U.S. even where you get these very flashy rain events. Um, You have all this urban flooding. Uh, People are displaced and it's always the folks that are in the low lying areas, which um, for other reasons uh, and, and even it goes back decades, um, to the way, you know, cities were set up with redlining and, and all these things, they're typically lower income neighborhoods that get the brunt of these, um, these extreme weather events. But nonetheless, I mean, this is something that's happening frequently and it just doesn't even, it it doesn't make the mainstream news unless it's a big, you know, huge categorical hurricane. Um, but these events are happening all over the place. Yes, they are. So I want to get back to water for a second. So we sure. just kind of hit on that. We've talked about carbon capture, and I saw, I read something the other day uh, that said, you know, carbon capture at certain plants increases water usage by up to 200%. And so there are, as we try to tackle this problem, you know, there are other issues that maybe, you know, people aren't thinking about and this strain on water is one of them that we think about all the time at Aquapor. Um, Can you talk about your thinking or your theory behind, and let's, talk just about water centralized water infrastructure and systems and decentralized water infrastructure. And what you think, um, is the better route as we move into the future is how we, how we build out sort of these systems.
0: Well, let me think about that. (laughs) Uh, Philosophically, I, uh, prefer distributed systems uh, rather than centralized systems uh, in our in human society. Centralized uh, systems te- seem to densify, intensify uh, wealth and uh, power for a few individuals. And after a while, that they, I, most of them don't seem to have the greatest good for the greatest number in mind. They have mostly their vested interest in mind. I got to keep it going the way it is. I can't change anything about it because I've got my power and my money and all that and my position in society because of how we're doing this. And uh, so that, that centralized part of <laughs> Just, uh, I think, is a flawed anyway. And then it ends up with an authoritarian, authoritarian organization, which I don't particularly care for either. I think authoritarianism, um, authoritarian people hate science. They hate data because it, it will counter what they want to think on a given day. But I'm, I'm getting off on a tangent. So centralized stuff like that is uh, uh, something that I think we can get away from. Distributed. Water is naturally distributed through branching systems and pooling, right? It falls in the mountains and it carves out by erosion these branching systems that distribute it widely as it uh, moves to the ocean. Um, And I think uh, following that model where you put uh, some way of reclaiming the water, where it falls and where it comes down, and that it's available to the local people in the villages or small towns where it comes down to uh, buy something like the porous concrete because it's a non-mechanical passive system. It sits there and it does its one thing. It takes some of the uh, impurities and sediments out of the water and it puts it in a cistern beneath it. And then that system would be available for pumping into uh, uh, central supply so that the community could take from it or it will replenish the aquifer be beneath it. So the distributed part a relation to aquapor to me is, I think it's pretty clear that it goes into sidewalks, roadways, parking lots, um, where it can take in rain, store it, and then if people need it, they use it. Otherwise, it replenishes the aquapore. Aquifer. Yeah. <laughs> an aquapor. Yep. Oh, no, I got caught.
1: That's perfect. <laughs> That's why we are aquapor.
0: <laughs> I got it
1: returning water to the aquifer through very small pores in our material. Um, I I agree. And I, I know I maybe caught you off guard with that question. It was totally off topic from what we were just talking about, but I think I really do think they're interconnected and and I think the the same goes for energy systems, decentralizing energy. Um, I like what you have to say about, you know, centralized systems accrue at the top and only at the top. It seems like, um, right although you know we we do rely on centralized water infrastructure for the most part now we're very lucky in spokane but you get into other areas and regions even in the united states where there are some um communities that uh, have either run out of water they're on the verge of running out of water you have the flint michigan catastrophe um yep. so i think for all those reasons um i'm 100 percent with you i think we need to look at a more distributed future when it comes to some of these critical uh, resources like water and energy and even food for that matter. Um, yes. Okay, we're going to flip-flop and go back. I I knew I had something on my mind that you talked about and it had to do with the carbon market again. Um, monitoring. What is your sense of how uh, carbon and CO2 emissions are monitored today?
0: Uh, let's see. My sense Flimsy. is that I, there are methods that if people were to embrace them, like right now, the, the gold standard, which is the one that w- the World Wildlife Fund came up with over 20 years ago, is pretty strict. And I think that you'd be safe by uh, buying carbon credits from people that earn them through the gold standard, um, and there's others that are close by, like Corsia and Vera, uh, but the Gold Standard does have have a, a pretty good technique for determining and verifying a carbon credit, but it's a lot of work to go through. It takes a little bit of money to go through that process and time and energy. Um, the The real problem has been people on this. Uh, the The first carbon trading happened from a country in South America, I don't know how, a few decades ago, where they planted, uh, there was an American company going in there and they offset what they were doing by the forests in this one place. And that was the beginning of the carbon market. But what happened is that uh, people started cheating on that as soon as they could. Okay, these are kind of mythical. I can make up my own. I can charge anything I want for them or whatever, or I can claim that I don't. And so there is a tremendous amount of distrust even still for what's the definition and uh, uh, what do you back up your carbon credit with. we are working on a solution uh you and i and and some other people uh that when we get going we're going to establish a really good independent monitoring system for especially manufacturing uh concerns because that's where our our histories are yeah and so the monitoring is uh still there's so much doubt about it. And there's phony people that have come along and say, I'll do your carbon credits and I'm going to form an organization full of really uh, neat people that we pay a lot of money for uh, not doing anything. Yeah. So. I know. <laughs> but anyway, it hasn't uh, achieved the discipline it needs to and the acceptance of that disciplined uh, uh, way to do this the scientific way, the way technical way, uh, the way that says, yeah, we're really going to know what you're doing. Oh my gosh, we don't want you to know what we're doing. Well, you're putting stuff into what I call the commons, which is everybody's atmosphere. It's not any one person's. It's everybody's ocean and water. We only have one ocean in this world. We just have different names for parts of it. And our land, that isn't, I don't care where the people think they own it. They need to be stewards of that land, period, while they have some control over it. So those are all shared things. And to think that you can just pour uh, toxic substances into this, I mean, our biggest threat right now in the oceans are the loss of coral reefs, which is this immensely complex, wonderful ecosystem that has supported so much life and still does. And it's beautiful. Besides that, the life that it supports. So I, where was I going here? No, I'm getting, you're, you're getting carried away with myself.
1: You're doing... You're, you're going everywhere, which I love. Um, and you talk about coral reefs. I know a guy that's working on a technology that thinks he can heal them. Uh, That'd be great. You know him. You know him well. And and I think he has uh, at least the the precepts of a technology that can do that. And believe it or not, it's a concrete type technology. <clears throat> you know, it's interesting. And uh, I don't tweet. I'm not, I'm not like a twitter guy but i did the other day i had to go out and tweet this because there's uh this semi-famous uh venture capitalist billionaire guy and and he's got some good thoughts and and i appreciate him um some of the things he has to say but his his comment a year and a half or two years ago was that the first trillionaire is going to come from climate change it's going to be someone that's you know solving some of these climate issues. And he thinks it's going to be through the energy transition, but I went on and and I had to tweet that, um, the first trillionaire is going to come from climate change, but it's going to be the industrialist, the guy that goes, gets his hands dirty, figures out how to turn all this waste that we have created over decades and decades and decades, turns it into useful product that can deliver clean water, um, you know, it will have an energy component obviously mm-hmm. in its process keeps greenhouse gases from going off in the atmosphere <clears throat> and maybe even creates um clean food or, or food abundance and uh I truly believe that and I actually think we know the guy that is and whether it's him or not that type of thinking and that type of technology um development is what's going to get us there and the person that I'm talking about is someone that looks at the the world from the lens of all of this is raw material that has just been wasted, but it's not waste, right? And um, I don't know. I just that that's something I've been thinking a lot about this week. Is I feel like the people, the 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 powers that be, and the people that have all the money that are trying to solve these issues, they're missing a huge blind spot. And it is turning waste into useful product and doing it in a way that um, not only closes the loop, but doesn't create any del- deleterious effects when you make the material. I hear you. So that's my little rant.
0: <laughs> no, I, I, I would imagine that would be uh, the next one uh, to make that kind of money. And uh, hopefully do the, the right things with it and continue if that happens then to continue modeling that way of thinking for anybody else in the world that wants it and to help them achieve it.
1: Absolutely. Yep. Um, that's, yeah, that, that's where money can be a force of good, obviously.
0: Yeah. Money is a neutral thing <laughs> Yeah, all by itself. It, that It's what uh, people do uh, with it. And, they use it to amplify um, who they are. <laughs> some bad, some bad, bad thinking and bad habits.
1: Yep, I would tend to agree with that. Um, so, what what has you most excited these days?
0: Oh, every day uh, is. Um, I love every moment of my life. Uh, everything from my lovely wife to my little old house on a hill where I have a view through my little plastic printing devices here that I can come up with ideas and make a 3D prototype out of them, uh, having people like you to talk to on an ongoing basis because you're a very kind and compassionate, smart individual, and you're a good conversationalist, and I, I enjoy that. So you're one of the things I enjoy.
1: Thanks. <laughs> so, the feeling's definitely mutual. Yep. Greg
0: Johnson has a good core. That's what I'm with. Thank you. <laughs> and so I like to write and I like to draw. And that's what, you know, uh, tens of thousands of drawing, because the drawing board has always been my laboratory for my thought. Uh, words are linear and they're not so easy to capture a concept with. I can do much better with a drawing or a visualization to understand something as a whole. Yeah. And, and I do that time and time again. Uh, that is my laboratory is a drawing board.
1: Yeah. Um, you, you, uh... You have some philosophy to you. What, uh, anything that you've been reading lately that um, you want to share with people that has sparked, you know, thoughts or insights for you?
0: Uh, sure, I'm going to. This is I'm going to read from something. This is a, I think it's 14th century, uh, samurai song. It's called the Warrior's Creed, and I, I, I have three of these in here. Uh, it's about it's a long thing of what I don't have as a warrior, uh, and one is I have no divine power. I make honesty my divine power. I like that. I do too. I I, I have no magic secrets. I make character my magic secret. <laughs> I have no miracles. I make right action my miracle.
1: <laughs> this is this, yeah, that's awesome. So there's
0: a uh, anyway, there's a there's the whole thing it's called a warrior's creed you can probably find it online I've, I've made friends with it for a number of decades now because uh it basically talks about who are you all by yourself yeah and what yeah. do you do and uh, the, the two biggest struggles that um i think human beings have is, is uh discovering their biases you know we have cultural biases that we came in with uh One of the – I was raised in the logging industry, which is very, very macho. But one of the – and this was in southern Oregon. One of the cultural biases there was rugged individualism. Yeah. And it was like, well, that's what I thought life was until I went – I did work my way through college, and I discovered that that is an illusion that we're all codependent and we're interdependent with each other. And even though I can – can't tell you how many business, successful business owners have told me, well, I did it myself. Uh, they didn't do it themselves. No. Um, they usually had their father or somebody else donate, but they have uh, to get this. I'm am I'm a self-made man. It's like no, all the not. people
1: along the way that helped them. <laughs>
0: yeah. So that's one of the illusions that I had growing up yep. and I had to, I, I, I got that. So it's those illusions. Um, I also grew up uh, with the concept, I, I've got nothing coming. Because I was raised in a, a kind of a stark world. Yeah. And I don't i don't think that anymore. Right? I don't think I have anything coming. I don't think I have nothing coming. Uh, I get to be who I am. And I enjoy that. Uh, I am unique like all the rest of us. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm the same. You know, 99.9% of me is the same as everybody else. I have a few thoughts that might diverge. Yeah. <laughs> and observations. And that's, uh, but the rest of it, you know. I get a haircut, I wear clothes, and I make sure that when I'm around people that they're comfortable with my dress and my demeanor so that uh, they will trust me to tell me who they are and what they're interested in. Um, And that's really important to me. I was teaching parents for a few years, and I absolutely loved that. Uh, I got to talk to the people that are really operating the world. They're working and raising children. I mean, that's a basic thing to do in the world. And uh, these people, whether they were on hard luck or not, had so much wisdom about them that I learned a whole lot from all these people. Yeah. Uh, w- one lady had seven children from three different fathers and she didn't have much money and she was in one of my classes and she was the brightest, best parent I have ever met. And yeah. she was juggling seven kids. Yeah. I was like, I'm thinking there, I don't know any upper echelon person that could do this.
1: Yeah. It's, it's amazing. Um, gosh i know michael you you hit on so many things that's why i love just having these conversations um you've been you know a really uh kind of a rock for me the last especially the last 2 months you know there's certain things that i've been working through and um you kind of been there for me and i know we were all over the place you know on this uh conversation but I'll get more, I'll get more focused and I want to have you back again, but um,
0: you better wait till what your, your listeners think first.
1: Yeah. (laughs) I'm sure whether the listeners like it or not, I, I, uh, I got a lot out of this, but um, I don't know. You bring so much to the table and just the way you look at the world and the way you think about things. I appreciate you. Um, And any closing parting thoughts? You want to leave with anyone?
0: Uh, no, I don't. I don't have any uh, anything of of that nature. Uh, I uh, all I find is that when I spend less time thinking in words, I don't have as many biases. Yeah. And unbiased thinking is what I strive for, so that I can see things clearly. And that takes work every day. It's not something that just happens.
1: Yeah. Lean into that for one minute. How do you do that?
0: The way I do it is uh, from some of the old Taoistic notions, they call it uh, state of mind being no knowledge. The way I achieve that for myself, my version of it is that we have this two stage memory process. Uh, we have the short term memory, which is where we put things in our mind for a while and rehearse them and then figure out what categories they get fixed in. And then we, um, We put him in there, yep, that was a dog, all right. Uh, And, oh, there's a cat, put that in those two categories. (laughs) (laughs) So what I've learned to do is um, uh, hold stuff in short-term memory until there's nothing happening anymore. And I don't do anything consciously with it. I let my brain sort it out. And when my brain does it, you know, the dog and the cat, they end up in separate, in the same categories at the same time. and then there's times when I have no categorization going on, which is when I have the least bias. Every time we put, in, put something in a category in our mind, or good or evil, or whatever it happens to be, uh, we're making a judgment. We're having an opinion. Uh, I try to stay unopinionated. Yeah. Uh, it's really easy to have an opinion. Um, the, I try not to do that. Uh, I try to hold things. And also, <clears throat> the only time there's any information... Really available is at the moment, uh, like talking with you right now. This is only the moment. Uh, the only thing that you and I have together right now is our wit and our character and our ability to communicate. There's no other prop that we can touch. Yep, that's yep. it.
1: <laughs> so true. Yep. Well, thank you. It's been fun. We'll have to get you okay. back on again soon. All
0: right. All well, right. thank you for, for inviting me. I appreciate it. You bet. <laughs>